The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, January the 2nd, and you're very welcome to this Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times, another one which we recorded just before Christmas. In fact, it's the second part of our Ask Me Anything with Pat Leahy, Harry McGee, Jennifer Bray and Fia Kelly from our political staff. I saw a question that came in and I thought, this, I'm going to have to ask Jennifer this question. And uh, Fionton, Jennifer, asks, if only Irish Times journalists were to vote for the doll, what would the makeup of that doll be? I think because you... Fionon or Fionton? as opposed to Fionon. Important to clarify. Yeah, well, we could ask Fionon back, you know, the same question if it was Fionon, but it's Fionton. Um, obviously, you're, you're, you're the blow-in here, so... I'm a blow-in, you're, you're being yeah. a cold eye to this subject. Well, obviously, as an impartial unbiased journalist. I couldn't possibly say which parties I would prefer over each other. What I would say, though, if if, if I had my way, instead of saying which parties we were, I would actually focus on the rep- female representation in the doll. It, it should be 50-50, and more beyond that, there should be a 50-50 split at Cabinet. I know it's quite aspirational, and if you look at where we are now, we're nowhere near as close. Um, I think the gender quotas have helped, even though some people oppose them. I didn't... I wasn't in favour of them at the time either and I've come to see that actually they served a purpose. I, the only reason why was because I, did, I didn't like this idea of token women and I equally am in saying now that we should have a half a doll full of women just because they're women. You know, we're, we're, we've got a purpose, we're good, we're effective, you know, we get the job done too. So I would say if I had my way, I'd have, uh, yeah, 50-50. That's a, that's, that's a very good answer to an entirely different question. So well, well done on that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, very, poli- very, very well politically handled. I mean, the, the underlying thrust of a is question we're all like liberals this, and we're well, all lefties well, well, and we're all pinkos. Well, no, actually, there's two different underlying thrusts can be in this. I think that's probably the thrust of, of, of this question, I'm guessing. Mm. Uh, but there's another one, which is you're all white, middle class, privileged, come from the same background and don't therefore understand, you know, what it's like to be, you know, uh, dispossessed or oppressed in Ireland either. So there is a critique from the left of the, you know, of the position of newspapers as well as the right. Nobody, no newspaper writes more about social issues mm. and about the plight of uh, underprivileged in society okay. than the Irish Well, Times then let's does. take the critique from the, let's take the, okay. the, the implied critique. Uh, I'm not saying it, that, that this question that basically... The, sorry, that the journalists is are... That, is that journalists are more liberal... Uh, more urbane, metropolitan, yeah, um, and, and let's take than, that. Let's than, take than the population as a whole. Let's take that on with reference to say the signal issue of the year, which crystallised those views: the abortion, uh, the abortion referendum, and uh, people in the some people from uh, an anti-abortion perspective, a pro-life perspective, have a view that the Irish Times, you know, had been campaigning, agitating for uh, uh, for abortion, for the liberalisation of abortion for years, and it's certainly true that the newspaper's position in its editorial columns and the position of many, its mo- of, many of its most prominent columnists was uh, uh, was uh, was indeed um, supportive of that uh, ob- objective. But in our coverage of the campaign, we strove, I'm sure we didn't get it right every day, but we strove conspi- consciously and deliberately to show both sides of the story, to investigate and probe both sides of the story and to report what both sides were doing. For which we took quite 
quite a deal of criticism from people on the repeal side of the argument that we were giving too much, uh, we were giving too much uh, exposure to the other side. Now, having both sides complaining about you doesn't mean no, that you're necessarily no. getting it right. In fact, that's a but dangerous it, idea. That, but that, it that does. But it does probably mean, in most circumstances, that you're not being biased uh, one way or the other in your uh, in your reportage. Is the question though not more less about the report? It, Sorry, I might be picking this up wrong, but basically the question is that the journalists are somehow better off or have had kind of a, you know... Well, we, we, we're really reading too much into the question. The question no, is... I'm, right, what the question is I mean, I'm going to try and answer the question, actually, because might as well. What the, what the hell? I think that the Labour Party would do considerably better in a doll elected by the, you know, 200 or 250 Irish Times journalists. I think the Green Party would do considerably better. I think the Sock Dems would do a bit better. Mm. Fine Gael up maybe down a bit I think Fianna Fáil would probably do significantly worse and I think Sinn Féin would do significantly worse does anybody disagree with that? I really have no idea I really have no idea I have no idea how people uh, uh, people around the table vote I agree I, I, I think that's I, a slightly older way of looking at it you know I okay. think you know like th- that's just the easy characterisation of the Irish Times as an institution but I don't necessarily think it tallies my experience of you know that everybody is fair enough. Everybody fair is enough. I mean, it's, it's, and it's it, going to run and, out. And, and in and political terms, everybody complains. Now we don't round off our party lights by singing Kamauchi Black and Tans as a rule. So I, I don't. I agree with you. I don't think Sinn Fein would do particularly well. I wouldn't think there's a huge. You know, you the the, the paper has had a reputation for being liberal, for being maybe a little bit left of centre. Um, and you know, if look, if you're looking at parties that 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 the newspapers traditionally support in terms of its kind of editorials or in terms of its columnists, you'd really have to look at the Labour Party and Fine Gael. Well, having said, so having said that, Harry, I would also say that I have plenty of colleagues who have worked with here, or some of whom have moved on to other things, some of whom are still here, who don't fit that, no, and who are actually oh, yeah, right of centre essentially in their views on economic and economic. I, I think it's know? it's an interesting part of the game. And we we play around Christmas yeah, trying to guess which way which way journalists would vote but actually what matters is how they do their work exactly and exactly. Uh, you know if people have complaints about that they're welcome it's to make it's not our job them, to say but it's, vote. it's our job to give to provide an understanding and reporting of the issues of the day uh, in, their, in politics and it doesn't matter what the perceived bias of the organisation is one way or the other what do you think of the um, I don't want to turn this into a podcast about media so this is my last, last point in this but in the United States they're much stricter about the division between expressing an opinion on a page and reporting a fact on the page and in fact their journalists in, certainly in the larger more established newspapers don't never do both and if they do do both they kind of get into trouble about it that's not the culture on, on this side of the Atlantic but on the other hand journalists don't explicitly state a political preference although you, you could infer one from some of the things that they write yeah, like, but again you follow like you know the White House press corps and social media and it's quite clear what their opinions are on things if they're they might not be reporting the fact but they will quite clearly express a view on the facts they're reporting in their engagement with readers or their engagement with their social media audience. So even that tradition that you're speaking about is breaking down somewhat and might still apply, strictly speaking, on page four of the New York Times. If you follow their staff on social media, it's quite clear what their views on the events of the day are. Yeah, if you're looking at the, for example, the, the Senate hearings on Brett Kavanaugh, um, if you covered the news coverage on the New York Times and, say, the news coverage on the Wall Street Journal, it was markedly different in terms of its approach. So the, 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 the New York Times kind of picked out the facts that were probably more 
more negatively cast Brett Kavanaugh, whereas the Wall Street Journal tended to kind of select the, 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 the facts that kind of supported him. We have a big poster up outside the building. Maybe we don't have it there anymore. We had it for a while saying, facts have no agenda, which is never... Well, it's a sentence I never quite understood, yeah, actually. It's, you know? it's, it's diffi- I mean, look, everybody has human foibles facts, and human weaknesses. Facts have an agenda of the selection of particular facts. Yeah, it is, it's down to the selection, but you try to be as, as honest and as, as disinterested but and as objective being, as you possibly can. By being alive, you're, you're selecting facts. Anything, yeah, anything you do in life is selected. There's also the compli- there's a complicated thing that Nick Davies has brought up as well about, he talked about journalism and about the fact that, you know, that if, if one side is making an argument that is totally outrageous and, and um, you know, offensive and worse than offensive, you know, um, the, the convention that they should be afforded 50% of the time, he's saying the journalists should really, you know, scrutinise or uh, examine the facts on the grounds as they find them and then try to give as honest uh, an interpretation of them as they can. So it's not, it's not, there's no slide rule, but you just try to be as, as uh, equanim- ec- use as much equanimity, I pronounced that word wrong, um, as you possibly can. My name is John Egan. I'm a member of the diaspora and I live in Auckland, New Zealand. And my question is about the diaspora. Dear podcast crew, in the recent presidential election, there were some discussions about in the future allowing expat citizens to vote for the next president. And certainly with all the ructions regarding Brexit, there's been a fair bit of discussion about what to do about upwards of a million EU and Irish citizens in the north in the post-Brexit landscape of things politically. Other European countries have diaspora or expat seats. France does that, Italy does as well, and I believe Croatia does. So my question to the podcast crew is, has this been mooted in Ireland in recent years? And the follow-up would be, if not, why not? Who wants to take that? But judges came to a press conference this morning where the Tanishta spoke about the diaspora voting in the presidential election. It's it's going to be put to the people in a referendum, so this government seems to be taken quite seriously indeed if it's asking the people if they it want It is to. different from the Oireachtas, obviously, I mean, in terms of well, the, the gravity of it. presidency is an arm of the Oireachtas, isn't it? Yes. So, uh, yeah, no, you're right. Like, it is you different know, in terms of the legislature. Yes, okay, that, that is true. Uh, but inter- he made an interesting point this morning. He, he, he said at this uh, press briefing that they didn't anticipate many people would take part in this, that all that are extending the franchise in the presidential election, or they intend to if the referendum is carried, that they don't anticipate that many people will actually bother voting. Do we have any sense of numbers? Like how many Irish citizens live outside Ireland? Uh, we didn't have that. We didn't get that this morning. But he, he said that his sense of it was from looking at the experience of other countries that he said, first of all, you would have to be obviously, you know, entitled to vote. But second of all, you have to be engaged in political debate in your uh, home country to such an extent that you want to go out and vote, probably at a polling station or if you could do it over online you would have to go through a bit of trouble to do it so it's not as easy as you have it here but just doing it yourself by going through your local school or whatever but you didn't anticipate much take of it but in terms of people voting in the Oireachtas there's kind of been t- chat from time to time about you know a northern representative in the Shannon, and that's as far as we get. Indeed, there is one now. There is, yes, cu- customary that yeah. somebody would be appointed probably the Taoiseach's nominee. Yeah. Taoiseach's, mm-hmm. uh, Taoiseach's nominee. But there's also been talk about having, you know, a specific panel in the, uh, uh, in the Shannon. Um, but I think one of the difficulties would be to define what the electorate is. So, is it Irish citizens? who are abroad, how would you define that? Mm. Or is it simply people who are entitled to Irish citizenship? And bear in mind, if you have an Irish granny, you're entitled to Irish citizenship. So you're talking tens of millions of people uh, across the US. Surely it would be the former rather than the latter. It would have to be the former rather than the latter. Somebody would have to be an An actual person with an Irish citizen in order to vote. Well, 
are to someone who had claimed Irish citizenship. Well, if they claimed Irish citizenship, well, then they are an Irish citizen, but they'd yes. have to go through the rigmarole of claiming their Irish citizenship, first of all, wouldn't they? Yeah, well, I presume so. Um, there is an argument as well that I don't, I think I might be uh, mangling this phrase a little bit, the sort of no tax, no vote, you know, this idea that if you're not paying tax and you're in this country and you're not contributing in your own way to the machinations, etc., should you really have a vote if you're outside of the country? Should you really have a say when you're not directly impacted by the decision that you're going to make? And I think there's merit in that. You know, I really do. Um, I know Although the point is made thing. by John in New Zealand that it's kind of it's more common in in Western democracies to actually have this facility open to citizens who live overseas. They do. You see it in the United States. The elections every time you see people going to the embassy here or voting by postal votes. Uh, you see lots of people, Polish citizens here, voting in their elections. So we're the outlier. And I wonder is that Harry made maybe a little bit because there's a slight fear of what the diaspora might do. And, and perhaps even more specifically, there's the fact that there's several hundred thousand Sinn Féin voters who are Irish citizens across the border. Yeah, would really have a significant impact because they'd be quite likely to vote, wouldn't they? They, they, they possibly would, um, but they'd also be quite likely to be Irish Times subscribers. And in experience, we find that a lot of them aren't. They're interested in Ireland maybe once or twice a year. And actually speaking to some of my friends who've emigrated, you find that as years go on, their actual, actual interest in Ireland in terms of the day-to-day politics uh, begins to wane. And, um, you know, the, further, the longer they're away, the less they're interested. I, I think the franchise should be extended. I, I'd have exactly the same reservations as Jennifer has. I think that if you are voting uh, for a political party uh, in terms of government formation, and if you don't have to suffer or enjoy the consequences of the decision that you've made in terms of the vote. Um, I, I think that, that that's a real question. And one of the interesting things in the presidential election in 2011 was that one of the immigration reform groups, they conducted kind of mock polls amongst the diaspora in the States. And notwithstanding everything that happened in the presidential election in 2011, David Norris won hands down. So they weren't interested. I mean, here we were you know, getting into the nitty gritty of what was wrong with all the candidates and all their foibles and all their picadillos and their alleged this and that. Um, whereas in the States, they just ignore that and they just said, we want you know, David Norris and he won by a considerable margin. Now, that, that I mean, of course, they'd be a small group in comparison to the general population here. But they might, at the margins, have, have uh, the power to influence things. But I think the principle of citizens having votes wherever they are is a good one. But I also would take on board the, the caveat or the reservation that she has. Isn't it? mm. It's, you know, the, it's, the, the, que- the question is uh, about the North rather than, you know, about a few subscribers to mm. the Irish world in Boston exercising mm. their right to vote for uh, for the presidency, as as. Hugh, I think, said that there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of Sinn Féin voters in the north, and I think that's a significant concern for for the for the government here. And also, also, you know, you're going to have a difficulty in the very near future um, in European elections, and because there will be, you know, European hundreds of thousands of European citizens in the north who will have uh, no representation in the European Parliament, and that is something of which I'm pretty sure you will see in a court in the not too distant future. Mm. Sean asks, is Sean says he listens every week but he thinks there's an overemphasis in the podcast on Fine Gael versus Fianna Fáil so his question is do you think the parties are given balanced and fair coverage relative to their 2018 polling I presume Sean you mean on that podcast and perhaps more broadly in, in Irish Times coverage I, I think that's a good question um, and we have a political landscape that is more fractured 
now uh, than, than it used to be. Irish politics for the great bulk of its history has been Fianna Fáil versus Fine Gael. Now, interestingly, the centre has recovered a bit since the 2016 uh, election. And at a time, you know, after, you know, in, in the great dislocation, political dislocation that followed the economic crisis and the period of austerity, it seemed to many of us that the Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael era was, uh, was gone. Now, I think their rivalry has changed, but they have come back to be the central dynamic of Irish politics, the vital, uh, you know, antagonism stroke relationship relationship for the formation of governments and I think that is likely to uh, to continue. It makes our job slightly more difficult of course because we've got to cover this central dynamic but also the bits that are orbiting around it. So I think it's something that we do have to be conscious of that we're not solely talking about Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael because there is more going on but that remains the most important dynamic. So those two parties roughly represent about 60% of the of the electorate going by the opinion polls um, this year Felix. So there, there is another 40% which to be fair, I think we've had, you know, a broad range of representatives from that forty yeah, percent of those parties over the year. Don't to be defensive about it, but I think we probably that have. is right. You know, it is, it is the dynamic that shapes mostly everything that happens in government and in the parliament to a large extent. The relationship they're in at the moment, in particular, means that the engagement between the two of them is the dominant issue in our politics. You know, they are. The, like it's it's conflict supplier agreements with the two of them are governing the country in effect together uh, by agreeing legislation and other other matters. So the way we do focus on them to a large extent, we do not like perhaps we should pay more attention to smaller parties and other groupings, which we do. And I think this podcast actually has a decent record of bringing people in from across the spectrum because the dynamic between the two of them at the moment is not just as Pat says the rivalry. It is the fact that they're governing the country together. I think, um, yeah, maybe we, maybe we don't cover independence as well as we could, but it's harder to cover independence because they're not really coherent. You know, they, they do represent a big um, group, I mean, collectively in the Dáil, even though they're kind of split into different smaller groups. Uh, but it's hard. It's harder because they're not really, you know, it's individuals forwarding particular issues. So a, lot, a lot of the time the issues tend to be local rather than national. So when you're trying to kind of uh, uh, discuss that in the context of a kind of, a, you know, for a national newspaper, or for a national media organisation, it becomes a little bit more difficult. Just in relation to the point that Pat, Pat was making earlier on about the Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, yeah, they, they rely on each other. And the funny thing is that they, they need to be stronger than their rival, but they don't need, if their rival becomes too weak, that actually puts both parties in peril. So they, they need to, that they need both parties to be comparatively strong uh, for that kind of central uh, force in Irish politics to, to, to remain. We have a very interesting question related to that. My question is inspired by Oliver Callan's recent article in the Irish Times regarding Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael's fear of merging. I wanted to ask the podcast panel whether they see the continuation of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael as separate competing parties to be disingenuous and ultimately damaging for Ireland's future potential, or does it provide a degree of gravity for centrist politics and ensures political extremism does not gain a large foothold in the political sphere, which we have seen happen around the world? From my own perspective, uh, considering how close the two parties are ideologically, as well as the success of the confidence and supply agreement, albeit in exceptional Brexit circumstances, uh, it would seem better for Ireland uh, that they would become one party, freeing up uh, political space and enabling real policy debate and political depth 
rather than the continuation of civil war inspired petty power politics. Yeah, wouldn't it be better at this point for kind of a co- for a political coherence uh, if they if they if they basically blended together to kind of have a something more like the traditional political landscape in other countries? Um, no. I don't think it would be. Um, I think we're at this kind of juncture in politics where we need more parties, not less. Um, people are, you, you hear it all the time, people are saying, I, I don't want to vote or I'm not interested in politics because it's the same old, same old. Um, so I don't think there, I don't think it would be a great idea to merge the two parties. I think there's, uh, they serve a purpose. You see it now in confidence and supply in that in some senses they hold each other to account. There's always an argument about, which is kind of a tired argument about they're the same party, like they're not the same party. Um, and as time goes on, on social issues maybe especially, you do see that they are actually quite different. And that's a good thing. And we should have more parties, not less. So that would be my take. Yeah, notwithstanding, so, yeah. the, sorry, notwithstanding the fact that uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are very anxious to do what the Irish Times tell them, uh, I think in this regard, were we to tell them to merge, they might, uh, they might respectfully disagree. And while for outsiders it's often very difficult to see the difference in policy terms between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and in truth, the poli- in, in policy terms, uh, their positions uh, are, are entirely are entirely overlapping. What we sometimes miss is the kind of cultural element and the cultural difference between the two and culture is important in politics. And if you talk to grassroots members of either party, they think they are different from the others and that difference is important to them. So whatever about continuing confidence and supply, whatever about future coalitions, a merger is not going to happen. You see, the thing that strikes me as being very interesting about this, because this is an old kind of a complaint or a thing in, in you know discussions about Irish politics, about the existence of a two-party system with two large catch-all centrist parties has prevented the emergence of what's described as proper politics as it exists in other European countries, a left-wing party and a right-wing party and so on and so forth. But he, now, over the last 10 years or so, we're seeing that traditional old duopoly of the left and the right in, in, in European countries start to collapse and fall apart and be replaced by something which is perhaps much more actually about culture, as Pat describes it, than about the traditional left-right ideo- ideological yeah, like, divide. That presupposes that argument which you'll hear made from the stage of a Labour Party conference, Sinn Féin conference, a left-wing conference of any hue at any stage in the last couple of decades, just get together and clear the stage for you know the left to become a a force in Ireland that presupposes that the Irish public have shown an appetite for that type of politics which I think their behaviour has shown that they haven't really like you know the moment of acute crisis in 2011 they went back to what was the centre Fine Gael and Labour there wasn't a huge move towards the radical left so I think that argument was tested in 2011 at the most extreme point of economic and political crisis for this country and the Irish people turned to what they knew best which was this system of centrism. It also, but it also presupposes that uh, the left would be able to coalesce around uh, a single political force and actually the entire history of left-wing politics in Ireland and in particular the post-crash period tells Especially us that now. that Especially is entirely now. impossible. Yeah, the... the the, I've never bought the the argument. I mean, if if there was to be a left wide a left right divide in Irish politics, it would have happened. So it it, it Ireland was a different society. I mean, it was an agrarian society until the nineteen fifties and sixties, and then it became industrialized. Industrialized, but never had the type of uh, conditions or environment in which left-wing politics have prospered. Anyway, we weren't an urbanised society. We didn't have a huge amount. We had pockets of working-class people in Dublin and some of the other centres. Actually, Tipperary had a lot of kind of 
industrial towns where, where the Labour Party and kind of parties of the left did, did relatively well. But they, they, that, that was the, the exception rather than, uh, rather than the, the norm. And actually, when you look at Irish politics in general, I mean, we, we're a very small, we're a small society and we're a kind of coherent society. And we tend to, we will grumble about it, but we tend to do what we're told. This kind of notion of the rebellious Irish is just a fallacy because if you look at what happened in 2011, people grumbled about it, but they actually took their medicine. In 2011, um, you know, you have this notion of the rebellious Irish. In 2011, you just didn't see the type of mass protests on the streets that we saw in Greece and Spain and elsewhere. And if you look at all of the parties, and even the parties that are radical, I think the radical parties realise that if they are ever going to go in power, they have to kind of come more and more into the centre. So if isn't you look... The move, isn't this the move that Sinn Féin is Sinn Féin doing at the moment. So if you look at the kind of the Venn diagram between all the political parties, the kind of the, 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 the bit in the middle that they share is quite large. So um, it's it, that's just the nature of politics. We tend to be not just centrist in our politics, but we tend to be centrist in terms of our our societal thinking well, as well. well. Well, just to just to build on that a little bit, there's two questions which are a little bit are related to what you're talking about the size of the country and things like that. I think Harry Allen asks, is the relationship between politics and media too cosy? And we also have a question from Lee who says, in the interest of transparency and journalistic integrity, should all members of the media declare any links to politicians or political parties? be it personal or professional. Um, the first one, is the relationship too, too, too cosy, Jennifer? No, and I've, I've heard this argument a lot over the last year that um, there's, there's this argument going around basically that after a couple of years, Paul Kors should be shunted out of the role and somebody else should replace him because they get too cosy in that time. That's kind of insulting, actually, because anybody... I think if I, I'd actually love it if somebody could come down and see how it works. You write a story about a politician, which is probably going to be negative. They're always the first person you bump into the next day. It's, <laughs> True. You know, it's just the law. It's just the way it works. It's awful. Um, and, you know, personally, and I've, I've been covering politics in the Dáil for nearly four years, and it hasn't gotten cosier for me. It kind of goes the opposite way, actually. The more and more you write about them, the less and less they like you. So, no, I don't think so. And I'm not saying, look, of course... I'm going to say that I'm going to be defensive. It just does make me angry. Because the impression because people get sometimes is sort of hot house up there in Leinster House, and you're all bump, bumping into each other in the, the coffee dock and rubbing shoulders, and the world over is that the journalists have to get close to the politicians to a certain extent to understand what they're thinking, to get inside knowledge. Mm-hmm. This is the classic: Are you an insider journalist or are you an outsider journalist? So if you, there, there is a, a place for journalism that explains to the public at large what is going on in its government and its parliament. Not all journalism is throwing stones from the outside there's a different there's a types place for that there's a different different types of journalism political journalism by its nature has to involve some sort of co-op, not cooperation is the wrong access word. access because with access comes understanding proximity. with proximity yeah. and understanding comes explanation and understanding for the wider public so that has to happen and I think that is tr- traditionally the critique of political journalism but political journal political journalists have to be close to politics because we do something that we are conscious of of the need to look outside the bubble as well and while we are based in Leinster House and we're in daily contact on a personal basis with politicians we do we are conscious and maybe we don't get out quite as much as we should but certainly if you look at like election campaigns and referendum campaigns we are all on the road at various uh, various stages you only have to go upstairs and inspect harry's mileage uh, claims to uh, to to see <laughs> to to see ex- do, do how you, much time, time them, how, how how much time where that you know where that he uh, and and to a lesser extent the rest of us have spent outside them so it is something that we are 
uh, are, are conscious of. Yeah, and also a because you... in Andrew Marr's book My Trade, which deals this question brilliantly, and he explains the nature of political journalism and the access to it. And it's a great line in which he says, the truth is the political journalist must behave like a shit, must build up relationships <laughs> with politicians and then ultimately betray them. And I just think that, like, that kind of explains it to a certain extent. You have relationships with people... Does that not describe never, the whole of politics? But you never... To a certain extent, yeah. you never forget what your purpose <laughs> is. And life, really. They're like, they're, I think they're a bit more... I, I, I think they're a bit more ruthless in Westminster than we are. I mean, it's like every every time I've experienced Westminster uh, political journalism, it's kind of like a nest of vipers, whereas we tend to be a little bit less... Um, predatory in terms of our approach and it does I mean when you build up a relationship with a politician and you're speaking to a politician on a daily basis it's inevitable that there will be human factors you'll begin to like that person and then you have to do a story that shafts that per- person and you're you're kind of essentially biting off the hand but feeds. you do it you do it you, you, yes you, you do it but so, I mean, sometimes you do it what about the question of undeclared interest I must confess I, do, I have, I have some, some difficulty with, with, with part of that at least you should declare any links to politicians or political parties well first of all what is a link I suppose you know is related or you know, your brother might be member of a party or something like that like. well yes I suppose or your, or your partner or, or, or whatever it might be and you know no, there have been plenty of people insulting. in the well there have been plenty of people in the you know political press teams of various media organisations who've had relationships with people on the other side of the fence haven't they because sure. that's life really yeah, I isn't know, it but like the journalists by and large have integrity I don't think that there's a need for that I don't you know. Well, I would differentiate in the question because it says the question says, "Be it personal or or professional." So professional if you, if you is an entirely different matter. Let's say if I was going out or I was married to somebody who was working in the Fine Gael, maybe in their team, would that have to be declared? I just no. I but know. if you were doing a nixer for Fine Gael, I think there'd be. An oh issue well, about that. okay. Um, <laughs> uh, this could you? get off. That would be what a professional <laughs> professional relationship. Might. Well, I just want to put on the record that I'm not doing any nixers for Fine Gael. Um, I'm going to move on to a very, very different question. Um, this is an interesting one because it is a characteristic, it seems to be, of the Irish political system. I am really interested to know how common the inheriting of seats is in modern democracies in general, says uh, says Owen. We seem to have a, I would say, very unhealthy culture of the seats of TDs passing from parent to child. Is this normal in Western democracies or is the degree at which it happens at home here in Ireland unusual? I don't think we have any data to hand on this, but there is, it is a fairly salient feature in Irish politics, isn't it? There's lots of data to hand. It is it on the on international comparisons. Well, well, there's lots of data in, on hand in, in terms of Ireland, but yep. it, it's it, you do get it in other countries, but not, not to my knowledge to the extent that we have it here. Maybe in smaller countries like Malta. Yeah, uh, it's probably I, I North often, Korea. I, think, I think, think. I often think know? it's a product. Canada, of places like that. I often think it's a product of the nature of our political system and that it's tradition of clientelism being very close to the electorate. Like, you have to know the life of a politician to really want to do it, and you have to grow up with it to really, I'd say, develop a, a love for it. That's what I often think, that the, the offspring of politicians who went to the Leinster House, of which there are many, have grown up their entire lives in politics. And I think it's the nature of the fact that it's an all-consuming job. But it's also... And the family gets drawn in, drawn into it as well, and then the, the son or the daughter comes in on the, the tide it's, as well. It's also on the demand side as well yeah. as the supply side in that, you know, the, 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 the relationship with between elected politician and voters is to some, some degree the voters trust, mm. the, uh, uh, trust the elected politician. They are more likely to be disposed to trust his son or daughter, mm. his or her yeah. son or daughter mm. than, uh, N- than, than people that they don't know. The name is very, the name recognition, name recognition is very, is very yeah. important as well. Tom Garvin from UCD used to quote a great cartoon from Dublin Opinion from the 1950s and it showed a TD on his deathbed and his family were all gathered around him and he was saying 
to my eldest son, I give the farm. To my daughter, I give my undertaking business. Uh, to my second son, I give the pub. And to my third son, I give my TD seat, you know. So there is... And Santa Kenny. Yeah, so they, I, I, think, I think the points that, that both Pat and Fiek were making there is that they, they grow up seeped in that kind of atmosphere well, and that culture. It's so much part of it. One of the things I found very striking about Martina, Martina Fitzgerald's book about, uh, about women politicians was um, particularly at its most extreme on the Fianna Fáil side where I think virtually everybody in the book was a dynastic politician of one sort or another uh, up until extremely recently. Uh, description of Morgig and Quinn. You know, the, the classic scenario is the father's died, the young woman's called back from her degree in UCG or wherever it is. She's in the kitchen and the, the common are out in the sitting room. She bringing them out tea while they're deciding on her future. I mean, that's a that's a picture of a very particular it's kind of a like political machine, isn't it? But, but well, there's it's an kind of what, it's what's, what's described, a, you know, in the book. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a kind of a, a, a nice, although sometimes time-consuming tradition in Leinster House is that sometime after a member dies, there are statements in tribute and the family come in and they sit in the Distinguished Visitors Gallery and uh, and so forth. It's very nice for people people concerned and some of the tributes uh, tend to be, you know, kind of engaging and entertaining from uh, uh, from from people who knew the uh, the TD in question and there was one such occasion recently and it was uh, to commemorate uh, the, the, the lives of two former members, uh, Sean Cleary and Sean Arda and the families were there but both uh, the next generations are represented in the Oireachta so Dara Kaliri is Deputy Leader of, uh, of Fianna Fáil Catherine Arda is Fianna Fáil's leader, uh, leader, leader in the uh, in the Senate and you know Will is a, is a, a reasonable bet I would say to be in uh, yeah. to be to, uh, to, to be in the Dáil and while that of course smacked of dynastic politics both Catherine Arda and uh, and and Derek Leary are really capable politicians amongst the best and I, of their And I'm sure that's true, but is it not the case? Is, is there a downside to this, Fiek? I mean, the, it, what's implicit in the question is that that it's unhealthy in some way. Down, the only downside I can possibly I can see. Well, not the only downside. One of the downsides I can see with this, I do think that it, I don't think it's an, as unhealthy as people say it is for the very reasons Pat was talking about. You know, one of the downsides I can see is in the bigger parties where. Someone is an aspiring TD, joins as a member, gets themselves elected to the council, and then tries to compete for the party nomination and can't because the well-institutionalised family machine has blocked every avenue. I think that is the only downside I would see with it. So in, other words, think, so in other words, it dampens talent. Yeah, I don't, nec- I don't necessarily think it leads to, you know, a poor standard of TD. I just think it, it probably well, perhaps lessens the opportunities for people from the outside to come in. I, I think I think it's kind of slightly more random with with dynastic uh, politicians. Um, now, th- th- on, on the plus side for them is that they've they've grown up with politics all their life, so they, they know what to expect and they know what to do when they become TDs. But what ha- what has happened with that with that dynastic thing is that sometimes you get the the next generation is far superior than the, than the generation that went before. Maura Gaken Quinn would be a very good example of that. She was an outstanding politician uh, when she was in the. But you occasionally get the plonker uh, as well, uh, who just um, who's just arrives into a seat because the seat has been handed to him. Name names, sorry, I could name names, but um, I will do so on the bicycle home uh, to myself while nobody's listening. Um, And I I don't think you get it quite as much with those who have kind of got into politics by going through the whole kind of incremental, you know, sweating it out at common level. It's a cartoon caricature, of course. You can't bequeath a seat to anybody. Anyone who has a seat has to get elected. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to 
give you a last question on this, and it's, it sort of relates to what we've been doing over the last year, and I think it's a useful uh, way, way of looking at it. Um, Peter asks, what did we spend the most time discussing that turned out to be the least important, and what can we learn from that to avoid getting distracted by storms and teacups in 2019? I'll go to the political editor first on this. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's a good question now. Uh, what did we spend most time discussing? We spent a fair bit of, we mentioned it already, we spent a fair bit of time discussing in the aftermath of the presidential election the uh, uh, the great the massive shift in our politics that had just occurred when Peter Casey got uh, almost a quarter of the vote uh, but as I may have argued at the time a great shift had not occurred in our politics and I may have thought that uh, we would nobody would be talking about Mr Casey within a couple More of weeks. More broadly is the presidential election a bit of you know kind of showbiz distractions from kind of more important issues yes. in, in, the, in politics yes, of the government. Yes, yes, but, but Politics is showbiz for ugly people, as we know, and uh, you know it's the one. The one. The one. Um, I don't think the Casey thing has entirely disappeared. He has, but I think what it has done, the attack on travellers, possibly has opened up a feeling among people that they can express certain views now more readily than they did yeah, a number of months ago. And then TDs from a number of parties have said that to me since the presidential election campaign that people are making representations to them and are using language they may not have used a couple of months ago so although Peter Casey is not going to trouble anybody any further I would think in political life what he tapped into has had a lasting effect Harry I know you weren't very impressed by the general palaver of the presidential election no, no. I mean, they, it was a coronation. I mean, it was an election, but I mean, there was only one candidate who had all the credentials to be president and he was the incumbent uh, for all. I mean, the, what, one of the good things about the election campaign is that it did... for all. That was like his election campaign. Yeah, but it did, it did highlight some of, you know, I mean, he, he hadn't really been scrutinised very much during his first seven years and people had been kind of ready to kind of roll along with it. And I think that, that there were relevant questions that, that did emerge about him. You know, what, why was he going to seek a second term? Um, um, the expenses and what have you. I think actually the, the brochure that he produced last week was, was clearly inadequate and doesn't really give much of an explanation as to... And it's a lot of money. It's money. He's talking about foreign travel. I mean, he, he, he gets nearly a million euro between... 750,000 and a million euro every year for foreign travel and some extra money for foreign travellers coming out of the presidential allowance and it's not specified but I mean other than that you know it was a very expensive and painstaking way of kind of asking a couple of relatively small and straightforward questions to the president about his performance over the past Jennifer do you think it was the biggest waste of time the presidential election in terms of the amount of I mean obviously the, the election had to happen that's what the constitution says but in a sense yes in a sense no because it actually has kind of got us talking about the role of the president and the finance is actually transparency in the office of the president, which is definitely worthy. But I think if it comes to what we um, spend too much time talking about that we shouldn't have, maybe an election. Mm. It was an just election a, that a, never, it never happened. happened. It was a lot of what happens next week if oh, we're on the brink of an election. There was a lot about there was a lot of it, and it has been that way for three years, and we're still kind of there. And I can understand it to a certain degree, but a lot of the coverage was around when the election will happen, and I think possibly there was too much of that. Personally. To wrap it up with one last question, quick round the table again. Who's the most stupid member in the cabinet? Asked David. The most stupid member of the cabinet. While I consider my answer to that, I'll pass it on to. You. I think you know this is one for Harry as well. To, uh... <laughs> Definitely Harry. <laughs> Go on, Harry. The most stupid. Um, 
I think to get Harry out of so many of them. <laughs> I think some members of cabinet have demonstrated. I'm not saying they are stupid people, but they have done some stupid things uh, during the year. That's a very Corbyn-esque uh, way of approaching the question. We're not going to say who's the most stupid member of cabinet. No, of course you're not, because that's what we do. Because we're all professionals here. Yeah. I was just yeah. about to. <gasps> Damn. Maybe next year we'll leave it at that. <laughs> I wasn't. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks again to Pat, to Harry, to Jennifer and to Fiek for joining us. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Your views are always very welcome to us. We'll do another AMA in a while because I think that one went very well. But you can always mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, from me and from our producer, Declan Conlon, thanks very much for listening.